I'll lead us in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for this new day, a new day to live for you and have life through you. As we've heard your word read and as we hear it proclaimed, we pray you would continue to do that great work in us, life-giving, transformative work. By the work of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, last week I told you that Kanishka Raffle is our new Archbishop, uh, and Dave told you that chapters 19 and 20 were the end game of John. And so imagine my delight, uh, knowing that I was preaching this week on this chapter, to hear Kanishka being interviewed on the radio, and when he was interviewed, talking about the impact John's gospel had on him becoming a Christian. Can I play it for you? Risky manoeuvre asking questions. Uh, but Kanishka is being interviewed. I am going to play it for you in a moment. Kanishka is being interviewed by Richard Glover on ABC, uh, being asked how he became a Christian. It goes for just over a minute. Uh, but listen to how he sums up Jesus and John's gospel. Obviously, wherever I went. But um, in my third year at university, I... Uh, really decided that I needed to do a kind of adult engagement with my faith of Buddhism and uh, um, so I spent the year really reading Buddhism and I think maybe bolstered by my new confidence I began to engage my uh, Christian friends uh, about their faith and that resulted in one of those friends giving me um, the Gospel of John uh, which I undertook to read. What happened when you read it? <laughs> well, uh, um, my life changed, Richard. That, that's what happened. In short, um, I, uh, having read, having spent the year reading Buddhist scriptures, I was very struck by how different uh, the Gospel of John was. It was transparently historical, uh, clearly talking about a, uh, a particular man and a particular place at a particular time, and the person of Jesus just emerged from the pages with uh, vitality and vibrancy. And he was unusual. He wasn't like the Buddha. Um, he had friends and enemies. He kind of uh, got into verbal skirmishes and worse in the end. And uh, so I found his character intriguing and provocative and compelling. Um, and uh, ultimately, of course, I, uh, I decided I was for him. See, some of your predecessors in this, uh, in this role required a full bull Billy Graham crusade to uh, get them over the line, but you managed it with a glance at the Gospel of John. <laughs> well, I think, I think it would be true to say that the Gospel of John has been bringing people to Jesus Christ for a very long time. That's great, isn't it? The Gospel of John has been bringing people to Christ, Jesus Christ for a very long time. Uh, I loved hearing that interview, and here in chapter 20, we see uh, that is exactly what John intends to do, uh, detailing the compelling events and showing us exactly what we're meant to do with them. I do have John uh, 20 open in front of you, though some of the verses will be on the screen. We're going to skim over the first section and sort of just cast your eye across them. But from the outset, let's be clear, no one there on Easter Sunday was expecting to see what they saw. That's because Jesus' resurrection was such a unique event. And so Mary, in verse 1, sees the stone rolled away and tells us outright what she's thinking in verse 2, that his body has been taken. What about Peter and the disciple Jesus loved? 
actually we're almost certain that the disciple Jesus loved is John who wrote the Gospel of John. But do you notice all the detail we're given in verses 3 to 9? First-hand, eyewitness, historic, persuasive details. Even so many details, in fact, that John tells us who was the fastest when he and Peter raced to the tomb and he won. And then there's the strips of linen and the wrapped body left behind. If the body was moved, wouldn't they have remained on him? Or the cloth wrapped around Jesus' head. Is it separate because someone took each off individually? Then cross back to Mary from verse 11, as if the grief of Jesus' crucifixion wasn't enough. Now his body has been taken and this is grief upon grief. But at the same time, the extraordinary uniqueness of his death is rearing its head too. Uh, First with the angels, knowing what they knew, that Jesus was alive, and seeing Mary crying. Do you think they asked their question because they were confused? And then it happens in verse 14. Jesus himself is standing before Mary, dead and buried, now alive and speaking. And not expecting him alive, she thinks, well, she thinks he's the gardener. Who else would be in a garden for burial? Until he speaks and says her name. And you can't help but think, wonder whether John's making a point that, it, that it's when we hear Jesus speak to us, like we are here today from John, that our eyes are open to who he really is. Now, I've heard some people dismiss Jesus' resurrection, uh, even reading the accounts here and in the other Gospels and describing it as some sort of hallucination uh, that they imagined uh, uh, the whole thing, that it was a shared hallucination, no less. And so, they say, Mary and his disciples wanted Jesus to rise from the dead so badly that they imagined it up, that they had seen him and that he did. And yet the evidence here is quite the opposite. Have you ever gotten a car and gone down to the shops and been surprised to find them shut? Uh, The shops are open all the time, isn't it, aren't they? So if you arrive there and there's hardly anyone parked in the car park at Lennox, it's surprising and confusing. We don't expect them to be shut. But if this day you've driven down happens to be Anzac Day or Good Friday or Christmas Day, they are. Well, the sceptics of Jesus' resurrection may well say we all know dead people don't rise again. And the eyewitnesses to Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection here, they thought exactly the same way. They were surprised and confused when something different happened because they didn't expect to find Jesus alive, which is why they were so overjoyed to witness that he is. But you see, Jesus is the great promise keeper. We, you and I, we spend our whole lives learning who are the promise keepers and who are the promise breakers, don't we? At least we're wise to. Uh, Whether in our family or among our friends or the people that we move amongst, uh, we're always having experiences and packing them away in our minds as to 
who is which because we know that their track record in the past is really a good indicator of whether we can rely on what they're promising to us now. And if Jesus keeps this promise, his promise to rise again, you and I can be confident that he'll keep his promises to us of forgiveness and promise of peace with God and of being children with God children of God and having eternal life with God. Now, we haven't got time to go through every promise that Jesus keeps. In fact, there are so many of them. Paul in 2 Corinthians says all the promises of God are yes and fulfilled in him. But let me remind you of this promise to rise, Jesus' promise to rise in John from John 2 when he had cleared the cellars out of the temples you may remember it in the temple courts and the leaders of the day took him to task about who was he to be doing this we read this from chapter 2 verse 18 the Jews then responded to him what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this Jesus answered them destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They asked for a sign. And remember, uh, when we read the first half of John, uh, we saw Jesus giving different signs so that we could know he was the promised Messiah and Son of God. But this last sign, the resurrection sign, it is the greatest one of them all. Jesus promised his resurrection before it happened so that when it happened, we'd know that he was not only willing but capable of keeping his promises. And isn't that the God we need? Isn't that the one who wonderfully meets us in Jesus? What about the way he addresses Mary then? What relationship does he describe her having now with God? In verse 17, he says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. By the way, there, I think he's talking about, you know, just as he came into the world and he's returning to the Father, that's about to happen, so don't get caught up with him here and now. Things are about to move very quickly. But he says, Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And that last section that's not a description of a servant relating to God, but of a child of God relating to him. No longer a slave, but a family member. Look back, uh, if you want to look into it some more, in John chapter 15, we read a little while ago. Or when the disciples were in the room with the door locked, afraid that if the Jews were willing to kill Jesus, they wouldn't bat an eyelid at killing his uh, followers as well. But when they're there and Jesus comes and appears to them for the first time, what does he say? Verse 19, peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Can you imagine what Jesus could have said on this appearance and coming to meet them after all that's happened? Perhaps about their failure when he was arrested? But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't just offer them a pleasant greeting. That's not what is happening when he says, peace be with you. He's actually talking about a transformation. Their new life. No longer enemies of God and under his wrath, but friends with God. The war is over. Hostilities have ended. And now we may receive peace from God as well. At this point, uh, with those words, there are two other things going on worth noticing as well. I mean, as Jesus speaks to his disciples here, the first is him sending his disciples. He says, like the Father sent him into the world, now he sends them to proclaim him as the risen Messiah and Son of God. Back in chapters 14 to 16, he was preparing them, promising they'd be sent. Now that he's risen, they're given the mission, a mission that still continues to this day of proclaiming Jesus, of inviting people to meet him in the words of John and in the other scriptures. And were you wondering what John's, Jesus' last words mean in verse 23? If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I don't think he's giving them the authority that belongs to him alone. But as people hear their message, as they hear Jesus' message, it's actually the instrument which will bring a response in people. And that response determines whether they are forgiven or not. For those who believe in Jesus... They will experience the peace Jesus greeted the disciples with. And for those who do not, their sins will not be forgiven. The other thing worth noticing here while we're here is the giving of the Spirit of God. In those same chapters, chapters 14 to 16, we read not that long ago, we heard how essential the Spirit is to God's mission and our transformed lives. Here John reports Jesus giving him to the disciples, not leaving them alone and abandoning them as he returns to the Father, nor asking them to do what they, what, uh, uh, they and we can only do in his power. And that's the thing about Jesus' promises, isn't it? He knows us so well. Uh, and don't you feel this as you hear him in John He knows us so well as only God could that he both promises what we need above all else, forgiveness, peace, his presence by his spirit. And he keeps these promises. Now let me ask you, have you ever had the experience of missing out on something exciting Uh, Well, you missed it only by a whisker. Uh, It happens to me every time I watch cricket. 
Uh, it doesn't happen every time I turn to look away from the pitch or the coverage, but you can be sure if something exciting is going to happen, and there is debate about that in cricket, uh, it's when I've looked away. Well, what about poor old Thomas here? You know, next time you duck down to the shop and leave the party, you know, just remember what happened to Thomas. Uh, or was he scoping for a better place for them to hide? What we know is that he misses Jesus' first appearance to the disciples, but what does he say when they say they've seen the Lord? Verse 25. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Because for Thomas, seeing is believing. Well, a week later when Jesus appears again and Thomas is with them, Imagine what that was like for him. Uh, imagine the joy and imagine a little bit of embarrassment. He doesn't even need to take up Jesus' offer at this point before he declares his belief in him in verse 28, my Lord and my God. Why do you think John incorporated uh, this little exchange? Is it because this moment marks a huge transition not just for these people than the disciples but for all people where the disciples mission Jesus mission in fact this mission is going to invite millions to believe even when they haven't seen Jesus for themselves Jesus is about to return to his father after all clearly in God's plans believing the message yourself without seeing the man himself is more than enough for you and I to move from darkness to light, from death to life. As Jesus says in these words in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. That's what John wrote in this gospel. He says himself in verse 30 to 31. Verses which we've read earlier a number of times in this series because John himself tells us why he wrote it. So that we would see the signs and believe and have life. Let me read it again for you. Uh, from verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe? Many people hold beliefs about Jesus. Uh, some that he was a real man, a good teacher, perhaps even a remarkable figure. Others dismiss him. Others are naive about him. But what does God want for you? He wants you to meet Jesus on his own terms as we meet him here in John, 
not to fashion him in our own image of what we'd like him to be, but to believe in him and trust him as he's shown himself to be. Lord of all, powerful, straight-talking, compassionate and merciful. Is that the Jesus you believe in? Isn't he the Jesus you need to be your Lord? Jesus has now returned to his Father. But here in John's Gospel, we have the evidence. It is laid before us in great detail of the historical reality of Jesus rising physically, bodily from the dead. But we have his word which is powerful. The eyewitness accounts that speak of this good news, it's worth saying that if you try and simply prove to someone and say, well, this proves it, they may well not be convinced. Certainly the words of John make it clear that we have to think very long and hard before we deny the resurrection. It lends itself to seeing the reality of the resurrection, but there is the spiritual issue that we face, whether for people here or people beyond us today, that sin will deny that Jesus is the light of God and brings the life of God. Don't be surprised when that happens. But nonetheless, present Jesus as the one who is presented here to us today. And that's why, in fact, as the mission continues, we encourage you and uh, let me invite you today to take up something like the Word One-to-One, little handy books that really just work through John's Gospel. They've got the passage printed and uh, a couple of questions. And if you're not sure of the answers to the questions, they're there as well. We have used this with people and you can read it for yourself or with others as well because the disciples' testimony that we read in John is enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and by believing have life in his name. Praise God for that.